0: All right, I want to start out with um, my message is called, Is Your Faith Too Small? And it really, um, it started when I took my daughter Emma to California, to Reading. You've heard me talk about that before, and I'm real sorry, not sorry. You're going to hear a lot about that probably in this whole year to come, because that's where Emma is, so that's the things I'm going to be thinking about, is, is the impact that that ministry is having on her life and Christianity in general. So this is just going to be, sorry, some of these sermons are going to come from this. But I just wanted to give you a little um, update. I took her out, was it two weeks ago? Two weeks, dropped her off at her apartment with three girls. Remember I told you she's having a little girl drama because it's the first time she's had roommates and stuff. And Carla Swanigan is out there right down the street, which is awesome. Emma's already been down there crying on her shoulder and getting... You know womanly advice so that's really good but the thing that um the thing that's so awesome about where she's at it's called Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry the first I was there for about a week and um you know all different ages of people go to this school. It's not just 18, 19-year-old. It's up to 70, 80 years of age. People from all over the world go to, this, go to this ministry. It's not just United States. I told you last time I talked to you that 5,000 students attend that school. Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry and Bethel the church itself is probably the number one economy boost of Reading because Reading is just a cow town. It's nothing to write home about. It really isn't. But that ministry has probably transformed the economy of Reading because of everybody that they bring in. And what happens, too, is, you know, we went out for dinner there at Cattleman's, whatever, and our waiter was an ex-student of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry from Washington, he came down, went to the school, and just stayed. He's like, I can't leave. I can't leave this culture. I'm going to stay and make Reading my home because I want to be part of what's going on here, and I want to be part of what they call a revival um, culture or atmosphere. While I was there and before school started, Emma said, someone's putting on an um, impromptu worship night, and I want to go. Do you want to come with me? I'm like, sure, I'll go and it was just like you could imagine maybe the first century Christians meeting or something, because you know you put the address in your GPS. I'm, I don't think first century Christians had a GPS, <laughs> but stay with me. I put the address in my GPS, and you drive around at night, and you pull up into this Amanda sketchy place. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can't say that word, yeah. And um, it's not a nice place and we go into the building the, it's like a town home and literally people are on the steps they're on the carpet they're on all the couches they're in the kitchen they're standing out in the back patio and there's one man on a on a guitar and they're just doing um impromptu worship And then, you know, someone would get up and give a word, and then they do impromptu worship. Then someone would get up and pray, and then they do impromptu worship. It went on for at least two hours, because I was there for two hours, and then I left because I'm like, I got to go. I got to get some sleep. But you guys, what kind of culture is that? That is such a cool culture to think. and, and, And the people there, we had a couple that was like 75. We had a lot of young kids that were... 19 or 20 there were a couple people you know middle age but there's no age barrier for that they they're like we're sold out to what we've come here for and we're going to pursue it and it just reminded me so much of maybe with the way the the house churches were in the first century you know just meeting from house to house it didn't matter what kind of house you had was there pee all over your carpet nobody cared do you know (laughs) janet (laughs) janet can't handle that sorry janet or Janice, as I'll call you now, Um, I was so impressed by that. And I'm impressed, no matter what you think about Bethel, I'm impressed by their pursuit of being um, not just complacent Christians, their pursuit of a revival culture. I want to give you a definition of a revival culture. It's an improvement in the condition or strength of something, something, like a revival in the economy, an instance of something becoming popular, active, or important, like the revival of traditional crafts, or a new production of an old play or similar works. And when I was thinking about, um, when I was thinking about Bethel and its culture, and it We've been talking about discipleship, and we've been talking about what it means to be followers of Christ and disciples of Christ. And one thing that Jesus did, and we've got to like totally wrap our minds around this and be okay with it, and I think we all are here, is Jesus walked in miracles, signs, and wonders that wasn't unusual for him. It wasn't um, out of the ordinary. It wasn't just for him. It's something that every disciple can and probably should pursue and do in their life. And I know that that is, um, for some people, it's either scary or heresy or they just want to tune it out. But I'm just here to say, man, I don't want to do Christianity at this low bar level. I want the bar to be up here. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm fired up for what Emma's doing out there. I'm fired up that these crazy, sold-out people, I mean, half of them don't have cars, they don't know how to speak English, they're a mess. But you know what? They're out there because they want something that Bethel has to offer, you know? And so it just made me think, where's my faith level at? Where's my faith level when it comes to translating this to the way that Jesus actually operated here on earth? Because he actually went out to the crowds and perform miracles and cast out demons and did incredible things. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How do we raise our faith level so we participate in what Jesus did and what he calls us to do? Because we are called to be Christ emulators, to look like Christ. So I just wanted to, I was thinking about what are the things that hold us back from actually exercising our faith? Because there, there are things that we can... Um, we can participate in, or we can squash, if that makes sense. Um, my, um, my message comes from the book of Mark. Mark, just as a little teaching thing, because, you know, I went to Denver Seminary and I like to teach little background things. Mark was um, the person in the New Testament who was a friend of Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas got in a little spat over Mark because Mark let Paul down somehow, And um, so Paul and Barnabas split over their opinion about Mark. But then Mark must have redeemed himself because later on, Paul asked, send Mark to me. He's been a great help. Mark is the, this is the author we're talking about, Mark. He was a great friend of Peter. He was not a disciple of Christ, but he was a friend of Peter. So he writes this firsthand um, story about who Jesus is. And the subtitle of the book of Mark is Miracles and mercy so what is faith in Hebrews 111 this is the passion translation says now faith brings our hopes into reality and becomes the foundation needed to acquire the things we long for it is all the evidence required to prove what is still unseen and later on in Hebrews Paul says and without faith living within us it would be impossible to please God For we come to God in faith knowing that he is real and that he rewards the faith of those who give all their passion and strength into seeking him. I just love that translation. Who give all their passion and their strength into seeking him. You know, when Jesus talks about faith in Luke and in Matthew, he says that faith is small as a mustard seed, If we have that, we can command a tree to be uprooted and cast into the sea, or we can command a mountain to be uprooted and cast into the sea with faith the size of a mustard seed. So it doesn't seem like we need a lot of faith to get things done, but we have to at least have some faith. And when I talk about, sorry, miracles, I'm not thinking just of, um, you know, healing or demonic Casting out demons. I'm talking about Ben. Everyone give Ben a hand clap. Mm. <laughs> i can going to do that. I'm not talking just about um, we think of miracles and signs and wonders as being things like, you know, a, lime, a lame man um, is healed or blind blind man is healed. Okay. I'm talking about marriages restored, I'm talking about finances um, restored, I'm talking about jobs, I'm talking about the healing of the inner woundedness sometimes that we grow up with, I'm talking about the restoration of every size and shape. That's That's what we are to operate in, not only for ourselves, but we are to bring it to each other. Jesus brought healing of all kinds, to everyone. He restored not only people's physical health, but he restored people back to their communities, back to their families. I mean, I want you to imagine back in um, Jesus's time, if you were a a demon-possessed person living out amongst the tombs, or you were a leper, you couldn't live with your family. They didn't have hospitals. They didn't have shelters. You lived by yourself, living hand to mouth in the wilderness all by yourself. Or if you were a leper, you lived in a leper colony with other lepers and you were unclean. And every time you came around a community, you had to scream out, unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. You didn't have any family to hang out with. You didn't have a job. You didn't have a career. You were just a leper. And Jesus came to change all of that And if we're to follow him and be his disciples, we're to change all of that too. And I want us to find ways to practically grow our faith and say yes to Jesus when it comes to walking in miracles, miracles of every kind. One of the things that I think that um, gets in the way of faith sometimes is not understanding Our place in the world and um, what I mean is sometimes we have pride or we don't have humility I'll put it that way it's it's foundational for us to understand our correct position in this world and I don't say this to beat us down and say we're all sinners and we can't do anything but what I do say is sometimes we get hung up on things we don't need to get hung up on we get hung up on doctrine Non-essential doctrine, I don't believe in speaking in tongues, I don't believe in this or that, so I can't participate with this or I can't support that because they're not doing it the way I think they should be doing it. We get hung up on um, style. I, you know, I don't like people that raise their hands or I don't like, ooh, how's this one, flag waving. Some Flag waving, right? That's a big one for some people, right? I can't take the flag waving, I remember I had one um, lady when I was working at The Rock. Um, she waved her flags in the middle of the aisle, you know, so people couldn't walk down. Why are you laughing? Oh, so you know, and I was like the Nazi usher, so I was like, "Listen, get out of the. This is a place where people walk, you know." <laughs> and she's trying to wave her flag and worship, you know. I'm like, "Oh, worship over there in the corner, but not here. This is a fire hazard, right?" And uh, and she said to me, she goes, "You're grieving the Holy Spirit." And like, I'm not. I'm helping the Holy Spirit. I'm cleaning a path for people to walk through. They've got to use the restroom, you know, or whatever. No flag for you. No flag for you. And um, I think I think what happens is that we um decide that we kind of know everything. And so if they're not going to do it our way, or their doctrine isn't right, or their expression makes us uncomfortable, that um, we're just going to kind of sit on our throne over here and, and condemn and judge and be like, yeah, I can't participate in what you're doing, and I can't participate with the Lord because my heart is judgmental, and my heart is critical. And I think if we're going to unlock miracles in our life and we're going to unlock faith in our life, there is no place for judgment and criticism because cause here's the deal. We do not know it all. We know a small, small part. And if we're going to be like Christ, we're going to say whether I even agree with you or not, man, I love you so much. And I want to see you walk in the freedom that Christ has for you. And let's agree to disagree, but be brothers and sisters. Even with the, uns- the, the unsaved world, you guys, all they see they're either going to see that we love each other, that we're humble with each other, they're going to see us fighting and disagreeing, and they want no part of that. The world is already judged and condemned. They don't need us to do it. It's not our job to judge and condemn. Whose job is it to convict the world? The Holy Spirit. It is not our job to convict the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to walk in signs and wonders, we have to leave judgment and condemnation behind us and not walk in it with each other's as brothers and sisters and with the unsaved world. Let me tell you, who did Jesus hang out with mostly? Sinners. Sinners. He didn't have a lot of use for the Pharisees because they already knew everything. We have got to come against a Pharisaical spirit if we're going to walk in signs and wonders and increase our faith. So the one thing I said I was going to talk about, Mark, I want to give you this story. Um... In Mark, first of all, let me tell you that it's recorded that Jesus did about 37 to 40 miracles in um, the Gospels. And then after, then it says, Mark Mark says, and he did many more miracles, but I can't write down. He did tons and tons more, but 40 are what's recorded in the Gospels. This is one particular um, miracle. Jesus is starting his um, ministry, and he's so popular that everywhere he goes, crowds crowds. Pushing around him. They just pushing around. Let me touch him. Let me see him. He's like a celebrity, right? And so he was teaching in this particular um house, and um there was a paralyzed man, and his friends, four of his friends, four of his friends, could not get him in to see Jesus. So they're like, you know what? Let's go to the roof, tear the roof apart, and drop him down through the roof to where Jesus is. Now here's the deal. I always thought that those roofs were like, oh, hay and stubble and, like, two little sticks or something like that. So tearing the roof apart was not really a big deal. But I was totally wrong. Because the common house of those times, the the roof was either made of stone slabs or tiles. It was a significant roof. So I want you just to imagine that you're in your house hosting a party that's a crush. We had a party, didn't we? And people can't get in, so someone climbs to the roof, knocks a hole in the roof, and lowers themselves down through it. That'd kind of be a big deal, wouldn't it? That's what these men did, because they're like, you know what, we're getting to Jesus at all costs. We're not going to leave my, our friend behind, because we know that that man right there has the power to heal our friend. We'll do what it takes to get there. We don't care if you're mad. I don't care if we have to break your roof apart. I don't care what the cost is. I'm getting this person to Jesus because Jesus can heal him. I think that's a fantastic story. I love that story. So that brings me to my second point. Faith is released through compassion. In order for us to see our faith in action, we have to be motivated by the same thing that motivated Jesus, and that was compassion. Jesus didn't look at um, the prostitutes, and let me tell you, tell you something. When, when, when it was prostitute, when it was prostitute, it wasn't just a man. It wasn't just female prostitutes. It was male prostitutes. It was all kinds of what we would call sin. Jesus didn't look at them and say, "Man, you're so messed up." Let me heal you so I can make you better because I can't really be around you because you're just not good enough for me. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus' heart was moved with the compassion. It says he looked at the people and he saw they were sheep without a shepherd. And what he wanted to do was provide the leadership and the love and the healing to bring them into the kingdom. His heart was broken for them. We have to be broken for people. We have to be broken for the things that breaks the heart of God. And we all have things, Amanda, we all have things that break our heart about this world. And if we're going to operate in miracles and faith, we have to be broken. We have to be, our heart has to be stirred with compassion. That's why I like that, um, that picture, the, the men, the four men, bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They're like, we don't care what it takes. We will break this roof down because we love our brother so much. This is the answer. He's sick. How do we get him to the answer? That's who we need to be. How do we get these people to Jesus? Or even better, how do we bring Jesus to these people so they can be restored? The other thing that I really like about Jesus because um, Sharon Garcha, Thank you, Mr. Chip. You're okay. You're okay. The other thing I like about, um, about one, one of Jesus' miracles, because it relates to my whole supper club thing, Jesus cared about, pe- about what people ate. He cared about feeding them. When um, he was teaching on the mountainside and he says to his disciples, these people have been here three days What if they had to eat? He cared about them. And the scripture says he was moved with compassion and he began to operate and figure out how to multiply the loaves and fishes and give food to the people. That validates me because you know what? I care about people getting enough to eat, having a place to sit, You know all the things that traditionally call Martha activities. I was like, Jesus was a Martha too because he cared about the food. He cared about the food. I love that. I'm going to make this, um, this is a bold statement. I don't know if it's even doctrinally correct, but I'm going to say it. You can't walk in miracles if you don't walk in mercy. You can't walk in miracles if you don't walk in mercy. Because we can't, um, if we don't recognize the mercy that we've received and the miracle of our own salvation, we can't give it out. We have to always remember where we've come from, so that we can extend mercy to the next person. Say, how do I be Christ in your life? We have to be compassionate the way Jesus is compassionate. This is, I think, kind of cool. And this is how it plays out practically in our world. Do you know that um, the modern hospital system in the world Owes its existence to people of faith. I mean, the, Charles Rosenberg says in his um, book, The Care of Strangers The Rise of America's Hospital System, the modern hospital owes its origins to Judeo Christian compassion. Evidence of the vast expansion of the faith based hospital is seen in the legacy of their names St. Vincent's, St. Luke's, Mount Sinai, Presbyterian, Mercy, Beth Israel. They, these were all charitable hospitals, some of which began as founding hospitals to care for abandoned children. I mean, think about it. Think about the hospitals in Denver. Except for Denver Health, I think, almost all of them began as Christian organizations or religious. We've got Jewish. 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 We've got um, St. Joseph. Joseph's. Um, which one? Presbyterian St. Luke. Think about that. That is the heart of God for our world, to, to practically provide medical care for all people in our country. And I just want you to know, when, when um, the world says that Christians are judgmental and harsh, never, I want you to point to a hospital and say, no, they're not. They're compassionate, and they're loving, and they extend mercy to all people and we need to thank our Christian forefathers that went ahead and did that and made an example of who Jesus is to this world you see it in the hospital and the medical system I think it's awesome so okay we talked about um, being humble we talked about having compassion the third thing is faith grows through discipline I'm kind of stepping on Bob's toes he's going to give us specifics about how to be disciplined in faith and before um before you get all, like, uh, about this, I'm not talking about discipline that s- stems from legalism. I'm talking about discipline that changes your life. Um, I happen to be, unfortunately, not as disciplined as I'd like to be. And sometimes I read those um, ha- the habits of successful people, and there's tons of these, these titles out here of how to be a successful business person. I kind of looked it up on the internet, and the first one is Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. We know that one. Mm -hmm. 33 Daily Habits Highly Successful People Have, the 7 Habits Successful People Have that You Need to Adopt, 10 Morning Habits That Successful People Swear By, 50 Habits of Highly Successful People, 10 Habits of Ultra Successful People, the Secret Sauce to Success. I mean, everything is about how can you be successful, what's the formula? Somebody do something. That's the reason I make my bed in the morning because some, I read some places successful people make their bed every morning. I'm like, Dad, Jim, I'm going to be successful. I'll make my bed. That's the least I have to do. I'll make my bed. I say that because um, if we're going to grow in faith, we have to practice it. It has to be um, a decision that we make. We pursue it, and then we practice it. And sometimes we have to be disciplined about it. It's just life. Not all of us are... Um, highly disciplined people and we have to put a practice we have to put put it into practice I was talking to my son Christian he is um, going to Rocky Vista he's got as a master's degree and he's got ADD and he said mom um, I'm really having to figure out how I can study and be, be successful as a student I have to do it early in the morning that's where I get all my studying done and then at night I will do things like my laundry or whatever he goes if I don't do it in the morning I won't get to it during the day. It's a strategy. And I think that we need to have a strategy for how we expand our faith. It's one thing to be like, well, I want to be like Jesus. It's another thing to say, what does that mean? How do we put that into practice? That's why when the kids go to Reading and stuff, you know, Emma told me she was in class until 4 o'clock. She started at 9, and she's in class till 4 o'clock. They've made a decision to discipline themselves, pursue a revival culture, and you know what? They're going to see it because they've made a decision and they've chosen a strategy. We have to choose a strategy. Bob's going to help us know that strategy next week. Is that right, Bob? Not in a legalistic way, but in a practical way. Because we know Jesus did it. Jesus, he would minister to the, to the uh, multitude and then he'd go away and pray. That was his strategy. How do I get with my father? How do I get? How do I hear the Lord? He had a strategy for ministry. We need to have one too. You know, I did a um, I, a long time ago. I don't know how many years, maybe ten years ago. I did a prophetic uh, ministry class at Jubilee by Jackie Jacobson. Any of you guys know that one? Yeah. And I had never done pr- prophetic ministry before. It was a real, real stretch for me. And it's about a 10 or 12-week long class. It's pretty long, isn't it? Uh, I think it was like whole school yeah, it's a long time. And the first five weeks are foundational, and then she says, okay, now I want you to get with, find a partner and give them a prophetic word. I'm like, well, I've never given a prophetic word again. What in the world? Like, how am I supposed to hear the Lord and know what to say. And she's like, you just get yourself still and, you know, hear the Lord. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, give me a formula. Give me um, a mantra or something, you know. And my point to that is sometimes we have to do something and we get the understanding later. Sometimes we have to um, step out in faith And we practice something we don't have the intellectual knowledge for, but we do it anyway because we're called to do it, and then the understanding comes afterwards. You'll see that in sports sometimes, right? Like I I ran a marathon once. I could tell you all about a marathon, but you don't understand a marathon until you run it. You don't know what it means to hit the wall and have to push yourself through it and all those kinds of things till you've actually run a marathon. It's the same way with faith. We have to practice faith Even when it's not comfortable, it's out of our comfort zone, we don't understand it, and we feel like we're going to be a fool or a failure. We still have to do it because that's how we break through the wall, right? You break through the wall of your comfort zone by just doing it, the understanding comes later. And that's the way it was for me for prophetic ministry. I would go up to a person, I'd be like, ah. I see a fire in your heart and like something coming out of it and does that make sense to you? You know, and the person would go, that makes total sense to me, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, did that work? Are you kidding me? I can't believe that. The more you practice it, the more you practice it, right? Am I right, Chip? I mean, Chip is super good at it because you flow in that naturally, right? Am I right? Chip is the best example of that. I'm scared. I'm scared of looking like a fool. I'm. Yeah. yeah, because when you do it and someone, like, I prayed for someone today, for example. Someone called me up and they had a worry, and I just encouraged them. I said, Can I pray for you? And, you know, I didn't know if she would be okay with it. I'm praying for her, and she's bawling and bawling on the phone. I'm like, Oh, thank you, Lord. You're giving me the right words to minister to her heart, but you're not going to know it till you do it. It's like when you and I would go and um, minister in the hospital, right? I would go to the hospital and be like, I hate this job so much. Like, I don't want to visit these people in the hospital. I don't know them. You know, and it's just, it felt like a chore, right? And I'd get in there and I would talk to them and I would pray for them and be like, blessed me so much I'm just so grateful that you're here and you're like oh dear Lord thank you for letting me minister to them right and then you'd walk out and your heart would be so soft and you'd be like God I had no idea what you were gonna do I just needed to obey and sometimes we just have to obey even when we're real scared and if you am I right yeah and if you want to be real scared hang around Emma Clodfelder because she makes you do lots of real scary things you don't want to do she's really, really into it. And she really doesn't have very much fear about that kind of stuff. She, she's crazy. Um, the last thing I want to close with this Chip, I've gone way over. <laughs> so sorry. Um, faith empowers significance and anointing. You know, I talk about destiny a lot and how we all have a destiny, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm going to use a different word called significance significance. I think that we all long to be significant in this world. We want to make an impact. We want to be known for something. I, we went and saw that movie Unbroken, and one of my favorite things at the end was we get to see Billy Graham, you know, because he's passed now, and we got to see, was it his grandson? or It was his grandson who portrayed him, and so we got to see his um, revival crusade that he started. Do you know in Unbroken, that was the first crusade that he started was the one in Unbroken in um, Los Angeles and I want to tell you something about Billy Graham I looked up some statistics about him because let's all agree that's a man of faith let's all agree that he answered the call on his life and went after God hard let me give you some statistics do you know that he ministered or he um, shared the gospel personally in person to over 100 million people 100 million people, like, imp- like at a tent revival thing. And many more million over um, TV and film and satellite. Three million people came to the Lord because of his ministry, those tent revival um, ministries. Some more statistics here. Yeah, in 1957, this is so awesome, his tent meeting in New York filled Madison Square for more than four months. Four months in New York City in 1957. He's, the, um, he's proclaimed the gospel to more persons than any other preacher in history. He's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and Congressional Gold Medal. This is what one Scottish minister said about him. My first impression of the man at close quarters was not of his good looks, but of his goodness not of his extraordinary range of commitments, but of his own committedness to his Lord and Master. To be with him, even for a short time, is to get a sense of a single-minded man. It shames one and shakes one as no amount of ability and cleverness can do. That's a man of faith. Sold out to the Lord. But the end of this is this. In the movie Unbroken, um, it's about a man, his name is Louis... What's the, what's the last name? Zamberini, something like that. The book, the book I'm broken, and you know the story. He was, um, he was an Olympic medalist who went into the military, was shot down, got captured by the Japanese. Well, he was actually like 40 days on a raft, starving to death, got captured by the Japanese, was tortured in the um, concentration camp, got released, and that's where some people end the story. But the rest of it is he went back home. He could not deal with all of his um, PTSD, right? And um, had alcohol problems, was almost losing his marriage. He had a small child. He went to Billy Graham's first crusade. Went to his first crusade. The first night he went in, and he says, I can't stand this, and ran out the first night. That's real. That's in the book. He comes back the second night. He gives his heart to the Lord. I just want to tell you something. That's fruit for Billy Graham because his faith saved this man, Louis, who then went on to have a um, a boys' camp for troubled youth, and then he went later on back to Japan, met with all of his guards, as many guards as he could, forgave them, and led them to the Lord. That's faith. That's the fruit of faith. Billy Graham walked in faith, this man walked in faith. And, and now there's two movies and a book and all this incredible stuff. And I just want to tell you, that's what we're called to do. We are called to be significant in this world, to have significance, to bring restoration and destiny and hope and healing out of a heart of compassion and a heart of mercy. And if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to really walk in discipleship, we have to pursue our faith, and we have to practice it, and it's got to be a priority to us. So let's pray. So Lord, I just thank you, God. I thank you for the privilege of partnering with you, of walking in faith, of practicing our faith, of extending our faith, of of seeing miracles all around us in every part of our life, Lord. I pray, God, that you would empower every man and woman here to walk in faith, to be like Jesus, to look at the world with eyes of compassion, eyes of mercy, and have their heart broken for the world, Lord, and for everything going on. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us and having compassion on us, God.